Good morning, everybody. Glad you're here and uh, welcome again. We've said it before, but uh, happy Father's Day. I know that for some people, this can be a hard day. Um, there are people who have lost their fathers in the last year, I know, and there are people who are reminded that maybe their father wasn't present or isn't present in their life. And, um, you know, this morning as we speak, I hope you hear from God to hear him say that he can be your heavenly father and he's a perfect father. I tell my kids all the time, I've never told my children I'll be there for them all the time because I can't. I can only be in one place at one time. And I said, but there is a father. Uh, there's someone who will be with you always. And that's our heavenly father. And I've always told my kids that to remind them that you have an imperfect dad and you need a perfect one. So look to him. Um, and you have permission when this dad's not acting right to talk to that dad about this dad. <laughs> um, throughout the summer, we've been doing this series through the book of Deuteronomy. And um, we've been calling it Yahweh is giving you. Okay, Yahweh is giving you. It's the idea that the Yahweh is the Old Testament name of God. And it's the idea that he gives us everything. We don't deserve anything. We are pretty rebellious and, if we're really honest, selfish kids. And God still chose to create people, us, give us life. He still gives life, even though we live in a world that's a mess and we sometimes mess it up worse. He is a giver. And so from the beginning, God gives. And the rest of the Bible, after about Genesis chapter 3, is God saying, I still give, but there are consequences to your rebellion. And I'm going to give a way for, of escape for you from the consequence of sin forever, but you still live in a world of consequence. And that's why this book, throughout the book of Deuteronomy, you see this phrase over and over, that God is giving you, that Yahweh is giving you. Over and over and over again in the book, you see it once again and once again. It's the reminder that we can't get anything from God. He's dad. He chooses. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. That as we dive into chapter 12 of Deuteronomy, you'll see a theme for the next couple of chapters. And the theme is simple. The place Father chooses. Right? The place Yahweh Father chooses. And it says this throughout these few chapters. And, you know, this is hard, right? We, I want to choose. I, I don't want someone to make the choice for me. I don't want someone to tell me where I have to go and where I have to be. I, I get to choose. And, and growing up, you know, when Dad says you need to be here at this time, how many of you are, like, for those of us that are older, that's me included now, of course, for those of us who are older, you had the by dark curfew, right? And it was always hard to, like, what did by dark mean? Right, And if you were a really good kid, you were there like in the sun still, you can see the sun above the horizon, right? You're home, be like, hi, dad, just came home because I know this is the place that you said I need to choose to be before the sun goes down, right? And so I came here because I needed to choose to be here with you and mom as we enjoy the evening together as a family, right? No, we're all flying a thousand miles an hour as the, like the sun's barely peak, like the sun's gone and there's like light shooting up and we're like flying into the driveway, hit the back brake, slide it, leave the bike laying in the yard, hit the door, I made it home, you know, and your dad's just shaking his head like, yeah, you did, you did. But if we're honest, isn't that our heart so often with God? We don't want to be where he's at because it inconveniences what we want to get done what we want to choose to do, where we want to choose to be, with the people we want to choose to be with. And just like our dads didn't kill us, <laughs> though they could have, just like many times the authority figures in our lives had mercy on us and said, yeah, you, you barely made it, but let's be honest, you, you could have been earlier. God has that same compassion with us. When we keep pushing him and we push the line, and when we look in this passage, we're going to find that over and over again, God is trying to tell his people, look, there is something I am choosing. There is a place I am choosing. It's my choice. You have to decide whether you're going to be in with my choice or you're going to make your own choices. And if you make your own choices that aren't in line with mine, I have to discipline you. If you get home after dark, you're not going out tomorrow night because it's dangerous. There are cars that aren't looking for bikes and I know you're going to be flying 100 miles an hour and not be paying attention and laughing with your friends and you're all going to get ran over. It's just the way it is. And so often it just, we, we, just everything in us, when someone tells us you don't have a choice, stands up and says, I'll show you. 
And God is saying, I'm just looking for people that will choose me, that will choose where I am, that will choose to want to be with me the way that it, you need to be to be with me. And we constantly fight that over and over again. In 12.1, it says this, be careful to follow the statutes and ordinances in the land that Yahweh, the God of your fathers, has given you to possess all the days you live on the earth. They're going into the promised lands. God's people have been slaves in captivity. He's delivered them. They didn't deserve it, okay? It's not like they did good things to be delivered out of captivity. It's not like they, God looked down and said, wow, my people are so awesome. They've been so obedient. They're the most wonderful people I've ever seen in the world. I'm going to deliver them <laughs> from their stupidity. No, he did. that's not it at all. He just says, I'm going to do it because I'm God. And I deliver people. And, and they fight Moses the whole time he's doing it. It gets worse for them. If you remember the story, Moses is doing the plagues. He's testing Pharaoh. And the people are complaining constantly, like almost even asking Moses to stop doing it because you're making our job harder. Now we were slaves. Now they don't even get, and they provided the stones for us. Now we got to go out and like get the hay and the stubble to make the stones. And you did this, Moses. It's your choices that are causing this. Stop that. And Moses is like, I'm just listening to the Father. He's telling me, and it just got worse and worse, and finally they fled, and God miraculously saved them, and now they've been wandering around for 40 years. Why? Because they made bad choices. And God said, an entire generation is going to have to die because of the choices that you made. And now they're at the edge of the promised land. Moses is giving his final farewell address, and he's looking at them, and he's saying, you need to know how to be with the Father in the place he chooses. And, and the first step is you got to admit that Dad knows what he's talking about. <laughs> he created you. He knows the world. He knows what he's trying to do. He knows what future he has for you. And the first thing is you have to be okay with his choices. And if you're not okay with that, the rest is going to be problematic. Look at what 1 John 5 says. This is John the Apostle speaking. The Jesus, the, called the, the disciple whom Jesus loved, he had a very close love relationship with our Lord to the point where he would lay on Jesus' lap. And that seems so strange to us, right? A man laying on another man's lap. But that's exactly the picture that God gives. A father and son and care. Just this, this care for one another that's deep, that's, that's not improper. It's, it's just loving and this is what John said, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Messiah, that means Yahweh who saves, who is the Messiah, has been born of God, been born again. You have a new family, a new father. And everyone who loves the father also loves the one born of him. That's other people who have been born again. You have, you have to love them too. That means you've got to love your brother and sister. Ew. You don't know what they choose to do. They drive me batty. God's like, yeah, I know. I created them. Put them in the same house with you. <laughs> he goes on. He says, this is how we know that we love God's children when we love God and obey his command. Listen, it's easy as a parent to know if your kids love you or not. It's, it's not hard. Like, when they're disobeying you and you're asking them to do something because you care about them, not just because you're mad, right? Because you want to sit on the couch and not do anything, but because you care about them and they don't do it, like, it's like, you, you don't love me. That's just what this boils down to. And then you get in the fight, well, you don't love me. Well, you don't, and then it just goes downhill from there. And he says, you just obey, because you're grateful, right? Like, thank you for giving me these, these commands. Thanks for protect, thanks for giving me a bike. Thanks for letting me get home before dark because you want to protect me. Thank you that you let me, like, have freedom to go out. You don't keep me chained up to the back door. I'm grateful. That's not our heart. He says, for this is what love for God is, to keep his commands. And look at this. Now, his commands are not a burden. They're not a burden. See, the problem in the Old Testament was God's people, every time he would tell them things, they automatically questioned God and said, this is too hard, this is a burden, we're not even going to try. We, we don't want to do this. Or they would try to do it, but then they would expect that by doing it, God would give them what they wanted. It was like a, a business deal, not a relationship. And both of those God despises. He goes on and it says this. He says, as you go into this new promised land, remember there are seven tribes, there are seven people groups there that God has said you need to get rid of them. They're corrupt. 
I've done everything I can do to reach them. They're not going to change, and they will corrupt you. And that's what he says here. Destroy completely, which is representative, by the way, of our sin. That when we come into the new family of God, that there are these things that we have in our heart that we can't play with. We've got to do away with at all costs. We've got to clean house. And if we won't, it'll keep coming back to plague us. He goes on. He says, destroy completely all the places where the nations that you're driving out worship their gods. See, this is key, and we've fallen captive to this in our world today. He says, look, you're going to have to destroy all the neat places that these people created to worship their gods, all their temples, all their neat stuff. Don't mess with those. Don't try to, like, redeem those and make them godly, because that's going to get you in a lot of mess. And this is what we often do today in Christianity. We don't look at what God really says about worship and what he says about himself. What we do is we just take the ways that have been adapted and we don't ask, is that really how God asked me to be a part of his family and worship him? Or am I just part of some denomination? Am I just a a part of something? And I've never even asked the question, why? And he says, look, you got to drive it out on the high mountains on the hills and under every green tree, tear down their altars, smash their sacred pillars, burn up their Asherah poles, cut down the carved images of their gods and wipe out their names from every place. Don't worship the Lord your God in this way. Instead, you must, look, turn to the place Yahweh your God chooses from all your tribes to put his name for his dwelling and go there. There's only one option, he says. This is offensive. Right? God says, there's only one, one option if you want to meet with me. Here's how it has to happen. Here's where I'll be. Period. And you need to be there. <laughs> like, this is how we're going to gather together as a family. Like, he lays this out and he says, it's going to be tempting to want to find a way to do this. I hear people all the time that when I talk to them, They hear that I'm a pastor, that comes up pretty quickly in a conversation because you typically talk about the weather, you talk about your family, and then you're, what do you do for a living, right? Like you're there. And I could say construction because I do that too, but that's only about 10 or 15 hours a week. So I have to say, well, I'm, I'm a pastor, I'm a minister. And then immediately it's like their continence changes, right? It's like they become a different person half the time. And I look at this passage and I look at what he says about his dwelling place and it's amazing to me because I won't even have to try to get them to make excuses for church. It's like they start making them on their own, right? Like I didn't even ask you about church at all. And all of a sudden they're like, well, you know, I I choose to really worship God out in the woods. That's where I go. I go out in the woods and nature and that's the place I really worship God. I'm like, I'm pretty sure that God didn't say that that was the place he wanted to choose for us to be in the New Testament. We're going to look at that in a minute. Like, I think you wanted us to be around other believers and other, like, called a church, a body of believers. Again, a church isn't a building. It's not a set of doctrines. A church is, is a people. And he's like, I, I thought that's where, no, no, no. I'm gonna, I, can, I can really do better if I'm by myself. Well, that's actually the opposite of what Christianity says. Christianity says if you try that in Hebrews, it says you're going to end up in a bad place. Like, like you need other people to help you not be deceived. I mean, he lays this out, and we're still making the same argument the children of Israel did back then. That that wherever people are, that I can choose a better way. There's a way I feel like I could do it better. And really what it is, is it's idolatry. We're making idols. The woods becomes the idol. The basketball floor becomes the idol. The marriage becomes the idol. My kids become the idol. Not bad things, because see, we make idolatry out of good things way better than we make them out of bad things. Because bad things normally hurt you. So you don't do them long term, right? It feels good for a moment, and then after a while, it starts killing you. And that's exactly what he's laying out. He's like, I know your hearts. If your heart isn't to meet with me first and to be with me first, you'll use every other relationship, including the woods, trees, deer, and whatever for you and the glorification of yourself and your feelings of contentment, not what I've said you need to do in the world around you. In other words, instead of going to fight the nations, you'll just go to the woods and hang out while your brothers protect you. 
You see, God was wise when he lays this out. When Moses is saying this, he's saying, look, you're getting ready to enter into a new relationship with God in a new land, and you need to be careful because it's going to be tempting to compromise. And here's the other thing. He says, the tribe in which I put it in. Now, this really drives us nuts. So Jacob had 12 sons, and one of them gets to be the special place we have to go for Christmas. Why do we got to go to Brian's house? That's my brother. Why do we got to go to Brian's? Why can't you come to our house? Well, he's a little closer than you are. I don't care. It's really inconvenient. Right? Why do we always got to go there? I mean, it's the same thing. We have the same fights. And God's like, because I chose Judah. Like, that's who I chose. And I chose Jerusalem, which was in the land of Judea, which is the land I gave Judah. That's where you're going to go. You're going to go to, oh, but Judah was, you, you know what Judah did? Judah did bad things. Have you read the Bible? He did some pretty wicked stuff. I'm not going to Judah's house because I'm way better than Judah. I didn't do nearly the bad stuff that Judah did. God's like, it's not about you. This is where I asked you to go. The question is, will you do it? Will you go where I've asked you to go and be with who I've asked you to be with? This is how 1 Corinthians in the New Testament talks about it. In 6.12, he says, everything, this is Paul, the apostle speaking. He says, everything is permissible for me, but not everything is helpful. In other words, if you're a part of God's family, God doesn't like get rid of you when he's mad at you. You're his child. He loves you. He gives you grace and forgiveness. It is absolutely permissible for you to ride your bike all night long. Just don't expect there to not be consequences, like dad driving around in his car to find you. And when he does, he might run you down, knock you off, throw you in the back, and say, good, you'll be sitting for a couple of weeks because you can't walk, right? Or he might want to do that, just saying. Like, there's consequences. And he says, everything's permissible, but not everything's helpful. Everything's permissible, but I will not be brought under the control of anything. In other words, I'm going to be sure God has first place, that I'm controlled by him. Don't you know that your body is a sanctuary of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Now, here's the deal. As I was studying this passage this week and looked at these two passages in Corinthians, the next one's going to pop up, I realized something. I realized a deception in our culture. I realized a way that I had not really thought through how the Father chooses. You see, when you read that passage and you read body and you read all that, you automatically thought of who? Yourself. See, we live in a Greek worldview. And in a Greek worldview... We look at the individual above the group. When Paul's writing this, he's writing this to a church body in Corinth, not a person. He is not writing this to an individual. He is writing this to everyone who has Christ. And later we'll see when Jesus says, where two or more are gathered, I'm there. You see, we read this and immediately it becomes about me and Jesus and we're already deceived. Is it about you and him? Absolutely, but it's bigger than that. You're a part of a family. And this is where we've done a bad job in our culture. We've, we've hooked into the Greek idea of the individual above all and we've made that the thing and democracy, choice, has reigned everything and we will not, we will not be told what to do and we will keep our choices and God in heaven is shaking his head and saying, that's not what I said. That's, that's not how I've done things. I've, yes, there are choices. And yes, we are an individual. And yes, it is a personal relationship with Jesus. Your grandma doesn't get you saved. If she knows Jesus, you're not getting in with grandma unless you deal and do business with God. God is clear on that in the Old and the New Testament. But in this, he's saying, look, there's all kinds of stuff that's permissible. And that's the question we ask, right? Well, it's not illegal. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Drinking Drano is not illegal. Go home and do it. There's no law against it. Well, that's not beneficial. Exactly. Stop asking 
Is it legal? Ask, is this the wise thing to do? Is this what God would really want? And so when you look at this, and then you reinterpret and say the body is a sanctuary, the body being the body of Christ, the church, the people of God. You are not your own, for you're bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your church body, Paul is saying, to the Corinthian church, the body of believers. You have to glorify God together. That's the way God has chosen to make it work since the beginning. He had Adam. It's not good for Adam to be alone. He gave him Eve. And the rest of history is about God creating a people, not one person. Later, it says this in Corinthians, or earlier, Paul said this in 1 Corinthians. Don't you yourselves know that you are God's sanctuary? Again, we look at you and immediately we think, yeah, me. I'm a sanctuary. I'm my own worship house. No. And that the spirit of God lives in you. If anyone destroys God's sanctuary, God will destroy him. For God's sanctuary is holy and that's what you are. It's a both and. It's, yes, I am personally a sanctuary, but I also am a part of a group of people, and I need to be careful with what I do to this body and what I do to that body. It's a both and, not an either or. And that's the way they understood it when they were reading this and when Paul wrote this. They didn't live in a Greek individualistic culture. They lived in a culture that understood community and people groups. And that's a huge difference when it comes to understanding that we're a part of a, of a family with a father who's trying to get us on the same page. You know, it's kind of like an illustration I heard this week. It's kind of like a Lego. I had my son bring me this Lego this morning. He obeyed me. Nice son. Thank you. I texted him and said, I need a Lego. I forgot to bring it. You see, we can look and say, look, a house. We can look at the Lego and say, well, without my piece, the house isn't really, it's got a hole in the foundation. You're going to need me. See that? See, we can live like that, or we can think, I'm nothing. I have no purpose. I can't do anything. I'm, I'm useless. Both are wrong. You see, this Lego is very kind of useless without a purpose to be connected to other Legos to make an image, to make something which is why we love Legos, because you build things with it, and you can step back and see what's happened, and you're actually participating with the creator God of the universe and being creative. And if you just got a Lego, and you're like, oh, that's beautiful. I don't, I don't want to touch it. I don't want to mess it up. I just, just leave it. Th-. People will be like, why do you have a Lego? Like, where are the rest of them? I don't. I just, I just keep one, just one. That's all. And people are going to be like, you are the weirdest person I've ever met in my life. Like, Legos are meant to connect. They got the little things, and there's, you know, that's, I mean, or if somebody tried to connect your Lego, you're like, I don't, I don't connect this Lego. This is my special Lego. I don't connect it. It doesn't touch any other Legos, right? You're like, what a weirdo, but that's what we do spiritually. And God says, look, be careful understanding what the purpose is. In Colossians 1, Paul writes to the church in Colossia that Jesus is the head of the body. That we're being formed into a body. We're being built together into something. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. He is the place God chose. The cross was the place that God chose to put his love on display. And that's why we all have to come to the foot of the cross and make a decision about Jesus. That's the new place. God fulfilled his covenant in the old place, and he said, now there is a new place. And then he said, now I rejoice, Paul says, in my sufferings for you. I rejoice that you put me on the bottom layer and stacked 50 other Legos on top of me, and I'm getting squished by all sides. But I know my part, and I know I have to be there, because I'm the only three Lego you got. All the rest of them are fours and twos. You needed this three in that one area. Like, That's what Paul is saying. He goes, and I am completing in my flesh what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Why? For yourself? So you can feel better about suffering? Man, I'm such a martyr. I'm such a Lego. I'm so cool because I suffer so bad. That is awful. No. The reason you look at it and say it's worth it is because you look around and say, I know that people need to see my father. 
They need to know him. They need to know what it's like to follow him and understand they live in a world that's constantly fighting his will. And I want to do his will. I want to lay my life down so that the body can experience the God I love and the uniqueness of the way he created me. That, that's glorious. That's exactly what he's trying to get across. Chapter 12, 6 says, You are to bring your, there your burnt offerings and sacrifices, your tents, your personal contributions, your vow offerings, your freewill offerings, the firstborn of your herd and your flocks. You will eat there in the presence of the Lord your God and rejoice with your household in everything you do. Paul just said rejoice, right? That he rejoices in these sufferings, these hard things to do. Because the Lord your God has blessed you. You're not to do as we are doing here today. Everyone is doing whatever seems right in his own eyes. I love this. Moses is talking to the people, getting them ready to go in the promised land. He's giving them this, and he's like, and let's just be honest. All of you do what you want to do every day anyway. Let's not do that when we get into the promised land, please. You've been killing me for 40 years. Please don't do what you want to do. Don't just do what you think is right. Ask God. Ask other believers. Ask the leaders. Find out what's right before God. Find out what the Father's choice is. Don't just make a choice and say, you should just deal with it, Dad. That is not the way we need to do this. And he says, and that's us, right? We live by doing what feels right. I'm going to make the choice that just, it just feels the best. Your feelings are deceptive. I don't know if you know that. You want to know how I know that? Because if I haven't eaten for a while, I get that hangry, right? We're like hungry, angry, and you're just short with everybody, and somebody then goes, Dad, did you, like yesterday, I forgot to eat lunch. And I'm just like, oh. I got this look, like this scowl. I get this scowl on my face sometimes, like this when I'm thinking or whatever. And, and, I'm, and I'm like, what? Oh, I didn't eat anything. And God didn't tell me not to eat anything. Like, I should probably eat something. Like, if I was fasting because God asked me to, then that's one thing. But I, I just had forgotten to eat. Man, I took something to eat. I made an egg real fast. I'm like, oh, this is my face changed. I was like, this is awesome. Like, I'm rejoicing, right? Like, it's so easy to get caught up in that. And he says, these are the things that you know you're supposed to be doing, and your tendency is going to want to do sacrifices in your house on your own to give your money where you want to give it, not where God asks. Your tendency is, is going to be for all these things, you're going to want to do it your way. And if you read Leviticus and Exodus and some of the other Old Testament books, there are rules on how you do these things. Because God's trying to teach a lesson. Your dad, my dad, the leaders in your life typically have rules and ways to do things that you don't understand, and they drive you batty. But then you get older and you begin to discover some things, and you're like, oh, that's why we, I, oh, I'm glad I did that for the last 10 years. I just wish I would have done it with a better attitude, right? It's no different with God. He goes on and he says, indeed, you have not yet come into the resting place. An inheritance the Lord as God is giving you. We haven't come into the resting place in the inheritance of heaven yet. We're in the same place that God's people were in the Old Testament. Already God is blessed. Already God's delivered. Already God has given us his word and a relationship with him, but not fully yet. We don't have the full, full take yet because he hasn't come back yet the second time. And he goes on, he says, when you cross the Jordan, live in the land the Lord your God is giving you. There it is again. He's giving it to you. To inherit. You're inheriting it from who? The fathers who believed before you. This isn't about you. It's not about you did all the right things and I like you better, so I'm going to give you a really nice house and land. No, I'm just keeping a promise that I made to your dad. You actually drive me nuts, but I made a promise to your dad. <laughs> goes on, he says... All the enemies around you and you live securely. Then Yahweh your God will choose the place to have his name dwell. Bring there everything I've commanded you. Burn offerings, sacrifices, offerings of the tenth, personal contributions, and all your choice, choice offerings you vow to the Lord. You will rejoice before the Lord your God. Wait, if I'm bringing the burnt offerings and the sacrifices, and that seems like a lot of sadness. Like I'm watching animals die and no. See, if you understand the purpose of all those things, when you bring them, you'll bring them with joy. When you see them as a burden, as we read in John where he said the Lord's commands are not a burden, when it's all a burden, you don't rejoice when you come to God. You're like, here it is. Oh, it's so hard. I hope you forgive me. 
And God's like, seriously? Is that really where our relationship is? Where God is saying, no, (laughs) bring these things and rejoice. And the opposite can be true where you look and you go, I'm not giving enough. I I need to give all to you and and keep nothing. I'm not giving enough. There's no perfect lamb. I've looked through my entire flock and every lamb has a little bit of a spot. And, And so the one I bring you is the best I have. And it's still got a little mark on it, but it's all I've got. So you know what? I just won't do anything. I just, I just won't. I'll just give up. Again, that's, you don't understand your God. You don't understand that you can bring your best and he makes it perfect on your behalf. That's what he did in Christ is he gave his best and Christ became perfect on our behalf. He goes on and he says, but whenever you want, you may slaughter and eat meat within any of your gates according to the blessing the Lord your God has given you. Those who are clean or unclean may eat it as they would a gazelle or a deer, but you must not eat the blood. Pour it on the ground like water. Within your gates, you may not eat the tenth of your grain, new wine or oil, the firstborn of your herd or flock, or any of the vow offerings that you pledge, your freewill offerings or your personal contributions. You must eat them in the presence of the Lord your God at the place your God chooses. You, your son and daughter, your male and female slave, and the Levite who is within your gates. We read this and we're like, Man, that's a, lot of, that's a lot to do, right? Let me ask you this. Why can't we put our elbows on the table? Like, seriously. It's like, it's like, like something bad going to happen? Like, like your parents look at you like, don't get your elbows off the table. Why? You don't want me to get calloused? I mean, I went, like, wait, why? I don't understand. Like, can he, because it's just what we do. Okay, like, I'll sit like this. Have you ever thought about it? Where'd it come from? Like, but we do it because it's the right thing to do because it's the etiquette of our day. Like, God is asking us to do things. And like a good father, sometimes he just asks us to do stuff to test us, right? Just to see if we'll do it and how long you'll do it for because then that'll reveal why you're doing it. And to see your response when other people do what you don't do. So you're sitting at the table nicely because you've been scolded so many times for having your elbows on the table for a reason we don't know why, okay? And you look across the little brother and little brother has his elbows on the table and you're like, get your elbows off the table, look mom! God's like, really? Versus saying, hey, hey, Dad said no elbows on the table. Don't do it. Right? That's care. That's compassion. But that's typically not why we did. I mean, then they ask, why? I don't know. (laughs) Just don't. I saw what happened to the last guy. Like, it was me. I think God does this just to see, do do you choose me? Will you choose me? I'll give you something that you don't understand. There's probably a purpose behind it. But let's just be honest. Even if they're not, will you just do it because I asked you to, because you love me? Or are you going to fight me every time? And then just be mean to everybody with it and beat them over the head with it. Versus just saying, well, well God said to do this. Well, why? I'm really not sure, but, but I choose to. And the reason we don't do these sacrifices anymore is because of what Christ did for us. He was the ultimate sacrifice. He made everything clean. He fulfilled the law. God didn't like forget these laws. It's not like God took these laws and said, okay, I changed. You don't have to do anything anymore. That's not what God did. He said, those laws have been fulfilled. They're done. Those laws are done away with. It'd be like you sit down to eat the next time and there's no table. Guess what you don't have to worry about? Elbows on the table, because there's no table, right? Wouldn't that be awesome? Because to take the table away, be like, we are not going to have any elbows on the table tonight, right? I completed the law. It's gone. The table, which was, represents the law we rest on, is gone. And you're like, yeah, but I, where do I put my plate? I don't know. Figure that one out. 
But that's exactly what God does. And then he goes on and he says it again. He says, rejoice before the Lord your God in everything you do. The New Testament repeats this over and over again. And be careful not to neglect the Levite as long as you live in your land. Don't forget about those who lead you. Don't don't neglect them. Don't think, oh, well, they're doing their thing and they just do what they do. Don't neglect to listen, to, to think about what they're trying to do, the lessons they're trying to teach you. And this is what we do today. We put our old people in homes. We don't want to hear from them. Because they take our life away. They make make our choices for us. Like if you have someone living with you that's hard to take care of, that's hard. They, they, They actually govern your life and the choice you're going to make that day because you have to care for them. It says, when the Lord your God enlarges your territory as he promised and you say, I want to eat meat because you have a strong desire to eat meat. I love that. He's like, I'm not going to tell you not to eat meat. It's okay. Just admit it. You want meat way too much, right? I mean, I'm that way. I mean, now we've got the keto diet. Everybody wants meat, right? Don't eat any carbs, no bread. Forget that Jesus is the bread of life. Don't eat it. He goes on and he says, if the place where Yahweh your God chooses to put his name is too far from you, you may slaughter any of your herd or flock he has given you as I have commanded you and may eat it within your gates whenever you want. Indeed, you may eat it as the gazelle and the deer are eaten, both the clean and the unclean may eat it. He's like, look, I realize that there may be uh, extenuating circumstances that you can't get. You're, you're, you're a merchant, you're traveling to trade, you're doing business and you can't get to the temple. Hey, still take the time out with whoever's around you to glorify me and worship me in that moment. See, this is what doesn't happen, right? Most of us, when we miss the opportunity to gather with believers, it's not like we're putting on a gathering. We're typically just doing something else. And God's like, man, I want you to understand that it might be hard to get there. And and let's just be honest, we make it harder than it is. It's just so hard to get to church, and then we drive 45 minutes to work every day, right? Like, seriously, God's looking down from heaven being like, oh, yeah, real hard to get to be with my people. Like, it's tough. I get it. You know, you see, and he looks and he says, look, I also give you permission that if it is hard, that you can come back and celebrate with the believers the next time you gather together and say, hey, guess what I got to do? I went to a far off land. I was doing some trading. I was doing some things and I couldn't get back in time. So I decided just to slaughter. And we had a, I I saw people trust God. they, They know about you now, Father, because of what we did. It was incredible. I just, I could not. I couldn't stand to think that your people are gathering together and I'm not there. And so I got to do this so I can remember that, man, I wish I was there. People are like, why are you doing this? Because my people are doing this. My family's doing this right now, but I can't be with my family, so I'm going to take time to do this now because my family's doing it. That's what he's talking about. He goes on, he says in Revelation, he says, then I heard something like the voice of the vast multitude like the sound of cascading waters and like the rumbling of loud thunder saying, Hallelujah, because the Lord God the Almighty has begun to reign. Let us be glad, rejoice, and give him glory because the marriage of the Lamb has come and his wife has prepared herself. She was given fine linen to wear, bright and pure. When we come to the end, when Christ comes back and he brings back his people and we come to this moment, listen, Christ is referred to as the Lamb who shed his blood. It's why they weren't supposed to let the blood, we'll see in a minute, touch the ground. Christ came back and he said, look, this is the new place that we're going to worship someday. You're not there yet. But someday there's going to be a time when we all get together and there's going to be nothing competing with us gathering together as a family. Nothing competing with us gathering with the Father and enjoying the family time, working together to make a difference and to glorify our creator. There's a time coming when that's going to happen. Right now, you've got to fight. You're getting ready to go into a promised land, into a land where there are enemies. There's going to be a fight. But know that there's going to be a day where when you prepare yourself, when, you, when you've obeyed, you're going to be excited about that day, not going, hmm, I don't know what's going to happen when I get to the pearly gates. If that's where your heart is, you don't understand your God. That is not the heart he wants us to have. He wants us to have a heart of confidence that he cares for us, that he loves us, that he wants to clothe us goes on and says, but don't eat the blood since the blood is in the life. By the way, it's interesting because we know that now, but when this was written thousands of years ago, they didn't understand DNA. We now know that this passage is absolutely biologically true. 
Blood is, is the life. That's why they take so much of it when they're trying to find out what sickness you have, right? They're like draining it out of you in vials, and you're lightheaded. Why? Because they're like, that's where the life and the death is. We've got to find it. And they don't spill it. They're careful not to spill it because what? It has the disease. He goes on and he says, don't eat the blood. Pour it on the ground like water. That was to represent Christ's blood shed. That when his back was laid open, the blood went on the ground. When he was on the cross, it dripped to the ground. When he was pierced for us, it was because he completely bled out that water came out of his side and not blood. Every shed drop, this is the representation of it. Don't eat it so that you and your children after you will prosper because you will be doing what is right in the Lord's side. Back then they're like, why don't we eat the blood? Other nations actually drink it and worship to their God. We're not gonna do that. We're just gonna have a nice, really rare steak and a big pile of blood on the steak, you know what I mean? Listen, we, we can do that now because we understand it's Christ's blood. It's not wrong for us, but you also have a little disclaimer on the menu. Remember what it says on the menu if you eat a really rare steak? Do this at your own risk. We're not liable. <laughs> Goes on and he says, but you are to take the holy offerings you have in your vow offerings and go to the place the Lord chooses. Present the meat and the blood of your burnt offerings on the altar of the Lord your God. The blood of your other sacrifices is to be poured out beside the altar of the Lord your God, but you may eat the meat. Be careful to obey all these things I'm commanding you so that you and your children after you may prosper. Our kids are watching us. If you decide you want to worship in the woods, that's where your kids are going to be. And when they come to a dark place and they don't have anybody else in their life and you've died and passed away, they're going to go down a dark rabbit hole. If they don't know how to have other people that they can trust, other spiritual fathers and mentors and people in their life, because you're not going to make it forever. God may take you tomorrow. And if you haven't given him a family, if you haven't given them a body, if they don't even know that that's a priority, they're going to be chewed up in life. And he says, because you will be doing what is good and right in the sight of the Lord your God. When the Lord your God annihilates the nations before you, which you're entering to take possession, and you drive them out and live in their land. Be careful not to be ensnared by their ways after they've been destroyed before you. Do not inquire about their gods, asking, how did these nations worship their gods? I'll also do the same. You must not do the same to the Lord your God, because they practice every detestable thing which the Lord hates for their gods. They even burn their sons and daughters in the fire to their gods. We've aborted over 30 million children since Roe v. Wade. It's approaching way more than that. And that's just America, folks. That has nothing to do with China's one-child policy. We are slaughtering our children around the globe for the idol of comfort and security and, well, and a well-off future on this earth. Are there extenuating circumstances where someone might have an abortion because of a medical issue? Absolutely. The percentage of that is so stinking small. So small. This past week, a record was, or the past couple of weeks, a record was set for the smallest baby ever born that has now survived and went home with her, their parents. 24 weeks was all the baby was. And they took care of that child outside the womb, and it is now healthy and at home and growing. And we're passing laws that say we should murder children all the way up until the time they even come out of the womb. Why? And see, we try to ask the why question. No why. You just need to have the choice to do it. If that's not exactly what God's talking about, Listen, if you've had an abortion, if you've done that, listen, David was a murderer, King David. And God loved him, and he cared for him, and he forgave him. You can be forgiven. Goes on, he says, you must not do the same. Be careful to do everything I've commanded you. Don't add anything to it or take anything away from it. See, one of the things we've done in our modern culture is we've created the attractional church. We've created a church, and we call it contextualization, which isn't a bad thing. But what we've done is we've created a church where we decide that we should be like the culture. We need to be attracting people. And if we're not attractive, then no one will want us. 
Do you realize that God saved a people that were slaves? They were completely unattractive. The Egyptians were attractive. The Jews were not attractive. They were slaves. And if we're really honest, most of our day is spent trying to figure out how to be attractive. How to work in such a way that, that I can get what I want. That I can be promoted. That I can get to where I need to be. It's not wrong to want to please. It's not wrong to do the right thing. It's about the motive of the heart. And so often in church, it's about how do we do what we want to do, not because we want to really care for people, and we say that, but the reality is when a push comes to shove, it's because we don't want people not to like us. This week I had to meet, I was invited to be a part of the Banneker um, Leadership Council. I had to go through an interview process this week. And I had a choice to make when I'm sitting in that interview process of why do you guys come to the Banneker and they ask me questions. I was speaking with someone across the table who practices a different lifestyle. This is the person who makes the decision. And I have a choice to make as I'm sitting there. I can just pretend like we love it here and it's wonderful and we'll do whatever you tell us to do or I can actually just speak the truth that we want to serve and we want to serve our community but we're not going to compromise our beliefs. And I know there are some things that we probably don't agree with, but we want to give ourselves. And I laid out the gospel in that conversation with another person where it was a co-interview, two of us being interviewed together, right? Like, we're going to choose one of you. I'm not making a good case, right? I'm like, I, I just have to tell you the truth of why, what motivates us to be here. And I even said, I know you could throw us out tomorrow. Bloomington may do that. I said, we'll figure out how to make it work. We'll meet in homes. We'll do whatever. But, but I, and we're willing to serve in any way, but don't tell me that I have to choose to not believe what my God says. I'm willing to suffer for that. See, those are hard conversations. He goes on to say this in 13.1, if a prophet or someone who has dreams arises among you and proclaims a sign or a wonder to you, this happens all the time today. I have a word from God. God told me. If one more person tells me God told them, I'm going to scream. I'm it drives me batty. It's like every day, God told me. Really? How? Like, like a messenger came down? Like what? How did, how did he tell? Most of the time what they mean is, I've already made my mind up. I went and found the scriptures that back it up, and so you can't tell me any different. That's what they really mean. I wish they'd just say that. But then it becomes a battle of like, if, well, if you don't believe me, then, then you don't believe my God. That's actually not too invalid. But he says there are going to be people who rise up. And that sign or wonder he has promised you comes about that says, let us follow other gods which you have not known and let us worship them. Do not listen to that prophet's words or to that dreamer. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul. You must follow the Lord your God and fear him. You must keep the commands and listen to his voice. You must worship him and remain faithful to him. That prophet or dreamer must be put to death. Because he's urged rebellion against the Lord your God who's brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the place of slavery to turn you from the way the Lord your God has commanded you to walk. You must purge the evil from you. Even if your brother, the son of your mother, or your son or daughter, or the wife you embrace, or your closest friend secretly entices you saying, let's go and worship other gods which neither you nor your fathers have known. Any of the gods of the peoples around you Near you or far from you, from one end of the earth to the other, you must not yield to him or listen to him. Show him no pity and do not spare him or shield him. Instead, you must kill him. Your hand is to be the first against him to put him to death and then the hands of all the people. Stone him to death for trying to turn you away from the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. All Israel will hear and be afraid and they will no longer do anything evil like this among you. Yeah, that is harsh. Now, this didn't mean that you just automatically started stoning people. There was a process. There, there was a legal process that you read about that they had to go through. They had every opportunity to repent and make a sacrifice and look to the sacrifice for repentance and say, I'm sorry, I didn't realize I was following a false god. You're right. I, please forgive me. Okay, great. Make the sacrifice. Get back on track. That was a part of it. These are people that continue to push the rebellion, that say, I have a word from God and you can't tell me any different. And I'm going to do this and you better... There's no other option. If you're going to keep peace in the family, somebody's got to die. That's why Christ had to die. Because there's no peace for humanity without someone being killed. We know this. The only reason we have peace in our country is why? Because we've got people that are willing to kill for us. It's called a military. We eliminate our military, 
we won't be free anymore. No different here. If you hear it said about one of your cities, the Lord your God is giving you to live in, that wicked men have sprung up among you. Lead the inhabitants of the city astray and say, let's go worship other gods which you've not known. You are to inquire, you are to investigate, and interrogate thoroughly. If that report turns out to be true, that this detestable thing has happened among them, you must strike down the inhabitants of that city with the sword, completely destroy everyone in it, as well as the livestock with the sword. You're to gather all its spoil in the middle of the city, square, and completely burn up the city and all the spoil for the Lord your God. The city must not remain a mounds of ruins forever, or it must remain a mounds of ruins forever, and it is not to be rebuilt. Nothing set apart for destruction is to remain in your hand so that the Lord will turn from his burning anger and grant you mercy, show you compassion, and multiply as he swore your fathers. If this will, this will occur if you obey the Lord your God, keeping all his commands I'm giving you today, doing what's right in the sight of the Lord your God. Here's how Jesus put it. The person who loves mother or father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. The person who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever doesn't take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Anyone finding his life will lose it. Anyone losing his life because of me will find it. It's the same message. Jesus is saying, look, if you've got another priority besides what God chooses and what the Father has said is the choice that you need to make, if there is another priority, if you've elevated something else, then you've brought back in the flesh, and I'm here to crucify the flesh be the first one to give my flesh as a sacrifice and then he asks us to do the same that the rest of my life is spent trying to get rid of this fleshly mess that's inside of me and allow the spirit to fill me up and clean me and make me new it's like someone who adopts a child that's been terribly abused and hurt you have to work almost your entire lifetime to convince them they're worth anything. You have to work your whole lifetime to tell them that there are consequences to your action. I can't let you act that way in my home. I can't let you do those things. And I tell you that because I love you. And you fight that battle and it is awful. But you do it because God adopted us. That's exactly what Jesus is saying. When you understand this, you'll give up your life. You won't try to cling it and prove something to God. You'll know you have no life without him. And so you'll surrender it. 14.1 says, you are sons of the Lord your God. Do you believe that? Do you believe that you're a son or a daughter of a father in heaven? And, and hold on. If you believe that, why? Because if you believe that because I'm a good person, because I'm a nice guy, because I've done some really great things, you're not of your father's household because he said anybody who says that isn't one of mine. That's pride. If you say, well, God could never love me, he could never adopt me, he could never want me, that is a lie. We stand in the middle of faith where I don't become too proud and I don't go to despair. I come always back to the sacrifice. I always come back to him and say, here I am again. I'm yours. He says, do not Cut yourselves or make a bald spot on your head on behalf of the dead. In other words, don't try to suffer to prove something. That's what the other nations do. For you are a holy people belonging to the Lord your God. You belong to him if you know him. The Lord has chosen you. The Father has chosen us. If you're here this morning, you're here and God is saying, I want, I want us to be in a relationship. I've made the choice. Will you make it back? And he says to be his own possession out of all the peoples on the face of the earth. That is both personal and that is both family. And he goes on and he says, you must not eat any detestable thing. These are the animals you may eat, the ox, the sheep, the goat, the deer, the gazelle, the roe deer, the wild goat, the ibex, the antelope, the mountain sheep. You may eat any animal that has hooves divided in two and choose the cud, but among the ones that chew the cud or have divided hooves, you're not to eat these, the camel, the hare, the, the hyrax, Though they chew the cud, they do not have hooves. They are unclean for you. And the pig, though it has hooves, it does not chew the cud. It is unclean for you. You must not eat their meat or touch their carcasses. And you're like, wow, that's, that's a lot, right? Do you realize there's a lot of reasons why God gives their laws? Like there are diseases that come from certain animals. Pigs are the worst crop on the face of the planet. Pigs destroy landscapes like no other animal. They do. 
They, they ruin fields. They crap everywhere. That's a very blunt word. It's true. They do. It runs off into our stream. It's bad. Pigs are terrible animals. They also carry diseases that can jump from pigs to humans. That's where swine flu came from. God's not an idiot when he asks us to eat certain things. Now, can we eat pig? Yeah, Peter saw a sheet come down and God said, I fulfilled that covenant. So it's not wrong, but it's still not a good idea to eat it all the time. It's really high in cholesterol. It'll kill you faster. Bacon smells great, tastes great, but whew, you'll pay the consequences later, right? And it produces so much grease. I mean, when you cook bacon, you just look at it and know it's not good for you, right? Like you're like, that's gonna go in me. Like that's terrible, but I'm gonna eat it anyway. Like it's, it's the same thing. He goes on and he says, you may eat anything from the water that has fins and scales, but you must not eat anything that does not have fins and scales. It's unclean for you. You may eat every kind of clean bird, but these are the ones you may not eat. The eagle, the bearded vulture, the black vulture, the kite, the any kind of falcon, every kind of raven, the ostrich, the short-haired gal, the gull, and any kind of hawk, the little owl, and the long-eared owl, and the white owl, and the desert owl, and the osprey, and the, and the cormorant, and the stork, any kind of heron, and the hopi, and the bat. Why would God list all those things? How many of you love having poisonous snakes running around your yard? Like, I can't wait to just have a family of timber rattlers roaming around my yard. I'll just care for them and pet them. It's going to be great. Those are the things that eat snakes. They also eat mice that poop in your grain because you don't have good walls, right? You live in tents, and they eat the mice and the vermin that cause disease. Good idea. Don't eat those guys. They help you. Trust me. They didn't know they were germs. They didn't know how that worked in that day. They just saw, wow, that hawk looks good. Boom, kill it and eat it. And God's like, he would have, the bat, mosquitoes, the number one killer of people in the world's mosquitoes. He's like, don't touch the bat. They are helpful. Like, put a, put a bat house in your yard and have them eat. Like, we know that today. We're scared to death we're going to lose the bats. Why? Because we know what happens. Mosquitoes get bad. Like, we look at these and think, Oh, wow, God's kind of smart. He kind of knows what he, he created it. He goes on, it says, all winged insects are unclean for you. They may not be eaten, but you may eat every flying, every clean flying creature. You're not to eat any carcass. You may give it to a temporary resident living within your gates, and he may eat it, or you may sell it to a foreigner. God says, look, I want you to take things that are alive and have to kill them to experience death. Anything that's already dead, you can let other people have that, but I'm telling you, I want you to experience what it's like to have to take life because that's what it's going to be for you one day, that if you're going to know Christ, you have to experience the fact that you killed him. Your sin put him on the cross. He goes on and he says, for you are a holy people belonging to the Lord your God. You must not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. I love this. Like, out of nowhere, don't boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Like, I'm, scholars have no idea, to be honest with you, why that's there. Nobody knows. It's the elbows on the table. Like, just don't do it. Number one, who thought of it, right? Like, I don't even know who thought of that. But somebody did. Most people believe it was probably an ancient worship practice. Like, there was probably a cult or another religion around them that would do this. They would take the milk, and it was supposed to be something that was a sacrifice to their God. So he's like, don't do this, because that's what the nations do, and I don't want you to do this. Each year you're to set aside a tenth of all the produce grown in your fields. You're to eat a tenth of your grain, your new wine, the oil, the firstborn of your herd and flock. In the presence of Yahweh your God, at the place where he chooses to have his name dwell, so that you will always learn to fear the Lord your God. In other words, you'll sacrifice and do all this stuff and you won't learn to fear him together. And then what's going to happen is you're going to be out there thinking, I'm good with God and everything's fine. And God's going to look, go, actually, we're not good. You're not treating your brothers and sisters very well. You're not even a part of the family. You need to question why. That's what this is about. Look at what Matthew, this is Jesus' words. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, that's Yahweh saves. That's what Jesus means. So whenever you gather and say together, Yahweh saves, he saves us. I can't save myself. I'm there among you. Because that's the message. You can't save yourself. He's got to deliver you. He's got to give it to you. That's the message. And whenever I hear that, I'm, I just want to be there. I'm going to come in a special way. I want to be present in that. He goes on and he says, but if the distance is too great for you to carry it, since the place where Yahweh your God chooses to put his name is too far away from you, and since the Lord your God has blessed you, then exchange it for money. Take the money in your hand 
and go to the place the Lord your God chooses. In other words, you don't get to choose. You ask him, okay, God, I can't get to where you are. Now you've given me this money. You've given me favor to get this. Now what would you like me to do with it? You may spend the money on anything you want, cattle, sheep, wine, beer, or anything else you desire. Wine and beer? Score. No, I'm just kidding. But he says, you are to feast there in the presence of the Lord your God and rejoice with your family and remind them that the rest of the family is doing the same thing. Do not neglect the Levite within your gates since he has no portion or inheritance among you. The Levites didn't have a land, and so God said, you're going to have to provide for them because I've asked them not to have an inheritance in this land. They'll have an inheritance in heaven, and so remember them. And also remember that they take care of the other people who don't have an inheritance. The widows, the orphans, the foreigners, the Levites take care of that. That's why he says at the end of every three years, bring a tenth of all your produce for that year and store it within your gates. Then the Levite, who has no portion or inheritance among you, the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow within your gate, may come and eat and be satisfied. And the Lord your God will bless you in all the work that your hands do. He's like, it's not about you. As we wrap up and we think about the place the Father chooses, this is what Jesus said when he was coming down to the end of his life and he wanted to make it clear to the disciples what it looked like to choose to be in a relationship with the Heavenly Father and with him. Okay? This is how God chooses it. Here's what Jesus said. He knows he's dying. Moses knows he's dying. He writes Deuteronomy. Jesus knows he's dying, and he tells his disciples this teaching. I am the vine. You're the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit. It's a natural byproduct of staying connected. You produce fruit, not because you try to, not because you run off and try to be your own vine, because you stay connected to the other branches. If anyone does not remain in me, he's thrown aside like a branch and withers. They gather them together. They throw them in the fire and they're burned. If you remain in me and my words, the word of God, this is where God has chosen to put himself is in his word, not out there in nature. He's done that too, but specifically his word. And whatever you, have, whatever you want, it will be done for you. Why? Because if you're connected to the vine, you're not gonna want anything God doesn't want. You're going to pray prayers that are God's prayers, not prayers you want for your own desires and your own. You're going to understand what prayers God wants you to pray, and you're not going to pray prayers outside of God's will. Then he goes on, My Father is glorified by this, that you produce much fruit and prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, I also love you. Remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I've spoken these things to you so that your joy, this is what's being written in Deuteronomy, same thing, that your rejoicing may be in you and your joy may be complete. This is my command, love one another as I've loved you. No one has greater love than this, that someone would lay down his life for his friends. Most of us are demanding life from everyone else. We're not laying it down. I do not call you slaves. You're my friends if you do what I command you. I do not call you slaves anymore because a slave doesn't know what his master is doing. I have called you friends. Friends. Because I have made known to you everything I have heard from my father. You did not choose me, but I chose you. You don't want to choose me, but I still choose you. I haven't taken you out yet. I appoint you that you should go out and produce fruit, that your fruit should remain, so that whatever you ask in the Father's name, he will give you. He's a good father. This is what I command you, love one another. And later in the passage, he says, when the counselor, the Holy Spirit comes, the one I send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. In other words, he'll tell you that everything in the Old Testament, all the Bible is about me because that's what it's always been about is the Son, Jesus, Yahweh saves. You also will testify because you've been with me from the beginning. You're gonna testify because you've been with me from the beginning. You don't know it. You may not even know that God's hand has been on your life, but he's been with you since you were born and he's calling you to make a choice to be in the place he chooses. And can I give you a little bit of praise? You're here this morning. 
You could have chosen to be anywhere else today on Father's Day. You could have chosen to go anywhere else you wanted to go, and you chose to come to be around God's people. Good job. Now, could you have false motives for being here? Yeah. Like, my kids kind of had to be here, right? <laughs> I'd come find them. But hopefully they want to be because I'm here and because their heavenly Father's here. You see, God is asking you to recognize your despair, your sin, to recognize your pride, and to not live in either of those, but to live in surrender to him, knowing that he chose us through his son Jesus Christ to be the sacrifice we could never give, to be the perfect sacrifice. He came back to life to show us you can die in this life, you can give up your life, you can lay down your life for each other, I'll give you new life. Will you trust me that I'm leading you to a land full of promise? And will you obey me to say, I know God's going to give it to me and it may not get to me in my lifetime. That's okay. I'm still going to do what he says because I know my children are watching. That's exactly what Jesus did. He was perfect and lived a perfect sinless life because he knew all humanity would be watching. And then he gave his life when he didn't have to and came back from the dead to give us hope, a deep hope. See, Yahweh is giving you. He's giving you a choice. He's already made the choice. Will you choose him?